Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy... You have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. What's the crack? How are you doing there? It's David. It's the podcast time. We've a little gem. It's kind of Brexit week, and I think you're going to like the chat that John and I have got coming up. How are you, Ed? I'm very good. I'm very good. What's the crack? Angry, angry man this week. Are you, you, you are kind of angry man on the oh, bus. Yeah, angry man on the just, bus. By the way, John sometimes uh, ahead of the podcast turns into, the, oh, it's just not right. <laughs> I'm having none of it. What's making you angry this week, man? The student nurses. Go on, tell me more. <laughs> tell me no, more. No, no, I've just been, I, I've been looking at this and I know there's a yeah, lot I know, of... Uh, I know the story. Go on. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, disinformation about it as well. But in principle, you know, you work, you should get paid. Simple as that. I'm with you on that. I'm completely with you on that. But the thing that really annoys me about this is there's a big hullabaloo about it. I know, I know it's not as straightforward as it's been presented. You know, there are a lot yeah, of... Yeah, and it's um, a, it's a, there's, a, there's a touch of politics all about the whole thing. Absolutely. But in the whole context of COVID and all the rest, only two months ago, they voted in the doll for a pay rise for the junior ministers. And it just it's yeah. just kind of... Tone deaf, you know, this kind it's, of shit should be going yeah, on. Yeah, it, I think that one of the big questions, John, is why, and it's a thing we should explore a bit more, why do certain professions get paid what they do? So why do like... Well, yeah. You no, know, things are like, why do lawyers who kind of shuffle paper around, you know, I mean, obviously they've got a purpose, right? Yeah. But if you compare that to an ICU nurse. Yeah. Right? And yet the disparities... Economists, why do economists get paid more than nurses? Well, get paid at all, actually. Yeah. Well, Mac, why do economists get paid? <laughs> but let's no, but we'll pick that up because if you think of there seems to be a disparity between the common good that somebody does and how they get paid and the individual good that somebody does and how they get paid. So if you think of Lots and lots of frontline workers, particularly in hospitals, yeah. porters, nurses, all, all these people, right? They are constantly being pinned to their colours. And it is a way, it, it's a, it's, it's a, actually, let's have that question, maybe in a couple of weeks' time. Let's come back to that one. Yeah, and I think, I think you're right, because that is something that, you know, opens up a whole load of stuff. It's a little bit like, you know, the other thing I'm, I'm, 
always oh, concerned. Here we go. Here we go. The, other thing, about, the other thing, this is, this and, and another thing. There's a thing on my mind, and I'm not prepared to stay quiet about it. <laughs> I had a few points last night. I got let out in the lockout, okay, at the lockdown. I had a couple of scoops. I was talking to me mates, who, as you know, as you know, are the oracle of all wisdom. We were down in Conway's pub in Black Rock. There we were sorting out. What, what else is on your mind, my friend? No, the whole thing about it, if you're talking about pay and and doing work and getting paid for it, internships. Internships are hugely important for any company and for the intern themselves. But a lot of companies use it as free labour, which yeah, I think is, and which that's, is shocking. And that's increasingly the case. Yeah. Because when we were younger, there was definitely not the same culture of interns at all. Yeah. Although Bill Trent might have something to say about that. <laughs> now, let's switch and talk. We're going to talk about Brexit. We're going to talk about Brexit. And I think we should go straight to the source power in the UK. And let's talk to the chief economist of the Bank of England, a marvellous character, brilliant economist, great head, Andy Haldane. Okay, we have a special treat for you. Just coming up to Christmas, we have a special treat for you on the podcast today because I'm going to go and talk to the chief economist of the Bank of England. Now, it's not always you talk to the chief economist of the Bank of England, but this guy is different. Firstly, We've been trying to get Andy over to Kilconomics for the last two years. Last year, all was good. He was sorted out. And then suddenly, bang, what happens? Boris Johnson calls a general election. And in England, they have a thing called PERDA, which means you can't speak if you're a public employee, public sector employee, and certainly a member of officialdom. Uh, the opposite here is in Ireland, where they leak like bejesus ahead of the election. But uh, in England, they have a totally different view. So, Andy, how are you? Delighted to have you on the podcast. David, absolutely thrilled to be on the podcast. I'm so sorry I've had to dip out previously. Um, what can you do? Sometimes politicians just get in the way, right? But it's, I'm thrilled to be doing this and looking forward even more to meeting up in person at Kilconomics down the line, I hope. Yeah, well, I, I, you know, as we were, you're, you know, you're from the north of England, so you'll appreciate grey winter days, <laughs> lashing rain, nothing much to do except go to the back of the pub and have a chat. So that's, that's what's on offer. Well, that, that suits me just fine, actually, because a big part of my approach to economics has been basically wandering around, chatting to people from different walks of life to figure out what the issues are that matter most to them. So actually, this is just the sort of conversation that we as central bankers, we as policymakers should be having all the time with as many people as possible. You see, Andy, I'm going to, I'm going to pick up, let's, let's start on that, okay? Let's start on economics. We can go on to Brexit and policy and all that good stuff later on. But the idea of economics... And the economics of the street and the economics of the common man and the common woman and the idea that economics at some stage, Andy, over our careers, took a, a weird, weird juncture and went off into academia and started talking a language that is incomprehensible and forgot the idea that in actual fact economics is nothing more, Andy, than the, the business of our everyday lives. What do you make of that? I think that's bang on. Uh, I think, you know, everyday economics uh, is something we encounter every day of our lives. You know, working, saving, spending, that is in the, the very bloodstream of who we are as individuals and is the, ought to be in the very mainstream of what we do when we study economics. But wasn't, but wasn't. We got bewitched, I don't know, by the science of it and forgot some of the art, forgot some of the human element, forgot some of the narrative. You know, focus on the numbers and not enough on the narrative. 
and that cost us dear. I think it cost us dear 10, 12 years ago when we had the global financial crash because, you know, the workhorse models that we use as economists, they fell at the first fence when it came to that really big event. I think, you know, the economics profession has had a better crisis, a better COVID crisis than it had a global financial crisis because it's put people center stage. But I still think, David, there's huge amounts we need to do to build more of what is the core of other social sciences, you know, anthropology, sociology, psychology, which is about speaking to people about what they think and why they're thinking that way. That needs to be much more a core element of of how we go about our business and certainly has been a core element of how I've gone about my business over the last, you know, four or five years, which have yeah, yeah, it's been about spreadsheets, but it's been about numbers. Of course it is, because data matters. But the stories, the stories that people tell, the colour, the context, that is all. I mean, we, to be honest, you know, people were surprised by the Brexit referendum result. Had you wandered the pubs of England, as I did, uh, chatting to people who previously weren't even asked for their view, it was absolutely there in the pubs, you know, not not remotely any sort of, you know, visceral dislike of the EU, just a more general sense of discontent with their lot, of insecurity about what the world had served up. That's why, you know, take back control was such a compelling narrative, because that's just what people wanted. They wanted a bit more control over their lives in a very insecure world. And maybe if it spent longer uh, up and down the pubs of the country, having those conversations about everyday economics, we'd have we'd have had a better sense of what was coming. Now, can I ask you about everyday economics up and down the streets, your neck of England, the northeast of England, you're from Sunderland. Sunderland was seen, or is now regarded as a sort of bellwether. What's happened? It's almost like we had a guy called uh, Tom Frank, an American writer on, wrote a book called What Happened to Kansas. It's almost the same sort of, you know, what happened to Sunderland? I won't talk about Sunderland FC, but we might. We might get there, the football club. But tell me about the north of England. What is going on there right now? What is the mood for odd years after the referendum? And what has changed, if anything? Yeah, well, I mean, it's... uh, I wouldn't want to generalise across the whole of the north of England because... As in every country in the world, I mean, there's there's bits that are working well, there's bits that are working less well. There's no question that in Sunderland, which is my my birthplace, and indeed, as you mentioned, kindly, my badly failing football club, you know, that is a place that is not doing well and hasn't been really for the better part of half a century, truth be told. They haven't really ever managed to find a way of re-emerging once the industry that had maintained them for many centuries, namely shipbuilding, had to spit. Of course, that's a story we see all the way across the Western world right now of some cities thriving, but many more not finally able to reinvent themselves for this, for this new world. And that is definitely the story of Sunderland and where the fortunes of the city have led, the football club regrettably have then followed well, you, you, you had, I mean, you did, have, you did choose Roy Keane to pull you out of that particular fire. I'm not sure how much you know about Roy's man management before 
uh, he alighted in Sunderland? I think Roy's inter- interpersonal skills, you know, preceded him into the into the stadium of light at Sunderland. And I think he, by and large, he, he, he was true to form during his, his, his relatively short tenure there. Uh, nonetheless, I mean, the truth is we had a long succession of unsuccessful managers. So Roy is merely one of a, a, a long a long sequence. I think what we see, we see this all around the world, David, is we see these spirals of success. Successful cities, say, act as a magnetic force for people, for culture, for business, for finance. And that, you know, those forces of agglomeration, so-called, mean that, you know, bigger becomes even better over time. And that virtuous cycle among the super cities, we see in reverse, centrifugal forces rather than centripetal forces in the struggling cities, in the struggling towns, in the struggling rural parts of whatever country it is that you occupy. We see a widening spatial gap between those forging ahead and those being left behind. And Sunderland, like many parts of Northern England, is in the latter category. That's a recipe for insecurity. It's a recipe for discontent. Uh, In that situation, people vote with their feet and have repeatedly, they vote for something that's different than the status quo. Because they've seen that movie, they've seen the old movie, and it always ends in disaster. They have opted for a different movie, and in large part, that's what the Brexit vote was about. So let's talk about Brexit, because this week, I mean, it's <laughs> it's a crunch week for breakfast. For breakfast, for Brexit, I mean, we've heard that so many times, right? But we are down the wire now, Andy. We are right down the wire. Irish people have a variety of issues that have been kicked off by Brexit that were lying dormant for quite some time, not just economic issues, social issues, political issues, national constitutional issues, okay? Tell me, what do you think is going to happen? You're the chief economist of the Bank of England. You're sitting there. You're right in the middle of English, British policymaking. What's your take on the whole thing? Yeah, well, I mean, I I can't pretend to have any... um crystal ball on this, uh, David. In fact, it, I think it'd be foolish for anyone to say they have any crystal ball on, on all this. I think this, it's, it's important to distinguish two, two things. One, which has actually been the preoccupation of, of many people and most of the media right now, is what deal is done. Indeed, is a deal going to be done? That is in the lap, if not of the gods, then at least of the negotiators. It's certainly a pay grade many levels above my own. And that will ultimately be about uh, compromises, both economically and politically. And, you know, by the time this goes out, we may well know the answer to those questions. So I'll not speculate on where that will land beyond saying, stating the absolutely bleeding obvious. So that remains my central view and my central hope, and indeed that of, I think, every government across the EU, particularly important for the UK and for Ireland, given their strong bonds across every dimension imaginable, not least trading goods and services. There is, though, a question that is a bit easier to answer, and that's about what happens in the very near term. Because irrespective of what deal is done, it is the case that the UK will leave the EU Customs Union at the end of this month. In other words, very, very, very soon. And the act of doing that will mean that some natural barriers to movement of goods and services come into play. There will, for example, be border checks on certain 
goods. And we need, we absolutely need to get ourselves in a position of being as prepared as possible, and indeed business being as prepared as possible for that change in the rules of the game when it comes to goods and people moving across borders. That may sound a bit boring. It actually is a bit boring. It's about having the right registration documents. Uh, registered sure, in the right yeah. place the, the, the basic right idea time. is that you're, logist- you're going to be you're going to be facing a situation where a geezer or somebody is going to put his hand up, stop the truck, and say, exactly. "What was going on last week is not going on this week, and we need this, 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 and this." That's right, and that risks upsetting goods and services flowing across border in a way that would affect all of our lives, because all of a sudden the stuff we might need might not be available or might only be available at a higher price. Now, the good news, the good news in all that, very important to get on the good news, David, those problems are fixable. They are tractable problems. They are logistical problems. They are bureaucratic problems that if we put our minds to it over the remaining weeks and days... Over the remaining two and uh, a half weeks that we have, yeah, go on. Two and a half weeks, you know, and and, and, uh, people have been busy this year for understandable reasons. So I I get why they may have left it late. There's still time, I think, to try and iron out some of those bureaucratic problems, those logistical problems, so that when we do reach the end of the month and those border checks do come in play, there's less chance of um, of them tripping us up. So that's the part of this where I think there's still, for us as, you know, policymakers, for us as businesses, for us as individuals, there's still stuff we can do, we can do, short of the negotiation, to make this difficult situation less difficult. Andy, let's talk about, so that's like, that's like you know, the next couple of weeks, the next few months. I mean, there is a really serious chance that this isn't sorted out in the sense that Kent will become a car park, all those sort of things we've, we've, we've read. What I want to ask you is what we kind of started on there is, you know, Brexit is symptomatic of something much deeper that's what we were talking about, Sunderland, symptomatic of something that's gone wrong. I want to look at Britain and what has amazed us as your closest neighbour is the sense that we want to figure out where is where does Britain go with Brexit? What is the plan? You know, if Brexit is symptomatic of large parts of the country being left behind, yeah. so what is the plan in order to get those parts of the country going again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's a great question, David. I mean, it's a question even countries not dealing with Brexit are themselves wrestling with, which is, uh, I mean, it takes us to those questions of inequality, which are many and various and longstanding. There's lots of different flavours of inequality, as there are many different flavours of Brexit, of course. There's the inequality financially, you know, widening gaps between the incomes or wealth of, of different people. There's the generational inequality, which is the gap between you know younger and older people, and there's also the the spatial, the kind of regional inequality between parts of the country that are doing well, parts of the country that are doing far less well. Now, pre-COVID, all three of those inequalities were at high levels, and in two of the three cases, they'd been rising at a rate of knots. So that was where we sort of landed if you like, kind of pre-Brexit, pre-COVID. I think there's little question that you layer on top of that, COVID and Brexit, and that has probably made a bad situation worse across most of those dimensions of inequality. So all recessions hit hardest 
the young, and this one will be no exception to that. It is hitting hardest the young, not least in their ability to get on the jobs ladder, first rung on the jobs ladder. It is hitting hardest those with fewest skills, which is likely to widen income inequalities. Funnily enough, it's possible that COVID might shrink some of the regional differences because, you know, urban density was a real asset pre-COVID, but has become a real liability because of COVID. So it might actually be easier in future to more evenly spread the jobs, the activity, the wealth and the income across different parts. Let's see. I mean, to be seen, but it's, it's an opportunity to do a bit more of you know, what, what the Prime Minister of uh, the UK, Boris Johnson, calls levelling up. In other words, getting those behind to catch up with those at the, at the front. So to do any of those things, you know, I think what were, what were necessities pre-COVID, closing the inequalities, income, generational and spatial, has become a necessity in the light of COVID. And we need a plan yeah. to make that happen, to close those gaps, which were, you know, were stretching the fabric of society beforehand, see Brexit, but which are stretching to the point of risking tears in that social fabric now. And that needs a plan, David. There's no magic in this. The thing is, there's nothing God-given about these inequalities. They are made by us and they can be solved or at least salved by our actions. And we know that from international experience. You know, there are many countries around the world that have found a way of closing those inequalities. And we need to look to them for inspiration for how we go about closing them too. Actually, there's, there's lots of things we could do that, that I think would, in fairly short order, make quite a big difference, actually. We're, we're going to list those in two seconds. So can I just ask you about, about England? How much do you think the class system militates against those solutions to narrow inequality? Well, I mean, possibly. I think, you know, to to slightly caricature, you know, I think the class divide these days is less one about about inherited wealth and inherited income, which was the kind of traditional class model, and is much more one about educational attainment. So I think there is a new hierarchy now, which roughly divides between you know those that go to university and those that don't go to university. So Michael Sandel's yeah um, yeah let's explore this Sand- Let, let's explore this Sandel uh, a little bit more because it is fascinating. And let, you know, tell me about it first, and then we'll explore it a wee bit. Well, his book is called, and all all the clues are in the uh, the title actually. It's called the Tyranny of Meritocracy, and it's a it's a kind of callback to a book written, what, almost 70 years ago now by Michael Young. Yeah, the Labour politician. Labour Labour peer and politician, that's right, called The Rise of the Meritocracy. Now, he meant this, and the point was that we were moving away from a model where uh, those that rose and those that fell was based upon their social standing and more upon their educational attainment, hence the meritocracy. Of course, now he meant this, uh, he painted this as a dystopian vision of how the world might play out in 1950. Uh, But then generation upon generation of politicians, David, took the notion of a meritocracy to be the pinnacle, the dream towards which we should be converging. 
you know, including in the UK, you know, Tony Blair, the prime minister in the 1990s, he very much built his view of the economy, of the educational model yep. of society around this notion of meritocracy, failing, as, as Michael Young actually pointed out to him before he died, that actually uh, what Michael Young was speaking about was the perils of yeah, going cause, too cause, far this route. Because I remember reading Young's book years ago, and it's set in 2030. It's a very unusual sort of construct. He sets yeah, it right. in the future and then thinks back, and he sets it in a, in a sort of a, a dystopian Huxley-esque world where there is these kind of, it's like the clever boys in the class, the cleverest lads in the class are on top. But I suppose what's what's fascinating about the meritocracy is that if, for example, you have an aristocracy, as let's say you, you certainly had in, in the UK, at a certain level, the aristocrats kind of figure out that we're kind of lucky. This is an accident of birth. So there That's is right. a sort of a, there's almost a checks and balance on the aristocrat because he, he thinks, he thinks Jesus, I was lucky, right? Yeah, but the, yeah, yeah. the guy who gets it on merit, who gets first in his class, or the girl who does that, they don't have this sense that I'm lucky. They have this sense that I'm special. That is absolutely right. And that is one of the key elements of the Sandel critique, that it generates that psychology, you know, because I'm worth it, L'Oreal style, among David, those... David Ginola, that... I believe it was David Ginola, was it David... And David Ginola as well. Uh, that, that's right. I'm just going to say, um, John, John luscious... do, you remember, do you remember the ad, David Ginola? Yeah, wasn't he the Spurs footballer? Yes, you see, we knew that that's Andy right, Haldane, he knows footballer. his economics, but he knows his football, he knows his hair ads, well, which is even more important. Well, he does. I think David Ginola had locks almost as luscious as yours, John, actually. Um <laughs> The uh, that's right, and and and, it, and, and as you say that, uh, what is true of those um, that have succeeded, it, the flip is true of those that haven't, because they sense it's their fault, it's somehow my fault that I haven't risen. You know, I, ha I don't have the merit to rise. So it perpetuates and indeed amplifies this gap between those that often, for reasons of pure chance or good fortune, or in some cases income. In fact, income is the yeah. biggest single indicator our, our, of who our, gets... Our daddy. Yeah. And uh, in some ways, as, as, as Sandel argues, that makes a meritocracy even more perilous and, and widens the divides even more than an aristocracy. You know, and, and, and that's not the worst description of why we have had the three sets of inequalities that I mentioned. Because as I see it, David, I'm going to simplify massively, caricature actually, you know, we have a bunch of people on the academic high road. Let's call them people who go to university. Mm -hmm. And a bunch of people on the academic low road that don't. People on the academic high road tend to work for businesses that, because they have skilled people on them, do well. And those businesses tend to locate themselves in parts of the country that are doing well. And the flip is true of those caught on the academic low road that they tend to work for companies who aren't necessarily especially innovative or productive and tend to locate themselves uh, in parts of the world that aren't necessarily doing uh, all that well. And those are all the three sides of the same coin. Because, of course, contrary to popular belief, coins have three sides rather than two. So that explains why we have the financial, why we have the generational, and why we have the spatial dimensions of inequality intimately interlinked in the way I've described. Those on the high road, people, businesses, places. Those on the low road, people, businesses, places. The first in that virtuous circle, 
the second in the vicious spiral. And because the centripetal and centrifugal forces are taking them ever further apart over time. That's a very simple model of how the world might work. So I'm a very simple bloke, but it's not the worst description of what is going on. And it also tells us what we need to do to start these plates, to mix my metaphors, spinning in different directions in future. Now, it's interesting you, you talk about, because I, I think that when I was younger, definitely the notion of a meritocracy. There's a, it's, it was this kind of idea, I, I, I think the first fellow said it was IQ and effort equals merit. So you have some smarts, you work your arse off, you get where, you, and you deserve it, okay? And as you said, the consequence is the other lad who doesn't do this doesn't deserve it. So it's not even circumstantial, it's actually almost ordained by, by some greater power. The difference is the fellows on the low road and the women on the low road don't have a stake, but they have a vote. That's right. And at some says democracy levels this all up, which is what you saw in the UK, what you see uh, in certain parts of Europe, what you saw with Trump, etc. When I look, just commenting on the states briefly, I look at the Biden picks for the cabinet in the last three or four days, okay? And I'm looking on Twitter and seeing the people are giving them the thumbs up. I'm looking at the editorial writers. The Biden cabinet looks to me exactly like the Obama cabinet, which was basically a more cosmopolitan version of the Clinton cabinet, which was the meritocracy squared. Do you think that the the left, the liberal center, center left, can fix this meritocratic dilemma without actually promoting people who are not from Harvard, are not from Yale, not from the Ivy Leagues, which seems to be the default position in the United States at the moment? Very interesting proposition. And the short answer is, David, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I hope so. I mean, your diagnosis is bang on. We have seen, you know, right across the Western world, it's true in Europe, it's true in the United States, it's true elsewhere, something of a hollowing out in the centre-left stroke social democratic stroke labour movements. And the common factor across all of those is that they have lost their working class base. They have not found a language or a set of policies that speak to those who historically would have been seen as being their existential core and many parties across many countries have been wrestling with that dilemma for a number of years now. That's partly a question of policy and partly a question of personnel. My hope would be, my hope would be, we've seen enough, we've had enough of these searing experiences over the past several years across a great many countries. People have woken up to the fact that they have not paid the attention they should have done to those that were their absolute core, spoke to the issues that matter most to people. So we have seen, uh, haven't we, an increasing focus on issues of locality and community and to an extent identity. And, you know, that, that in their more extreme forms, they can tip over into, you know, xenophobia or, yeah. or, or, or even uh, racism. But that people have a sense of pride in their locality is no bad thing. And, and politicians recognising that often the only thing people have left 
is their own neighbourhood and their own community, I think is a, a very important lesson that I hope is you know, acted on and, 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 and heeded. So I don't know the answer to your question about whether the same old faces can deliver a different set of policies, but I certainly hope they, they can because the issues are, are no less important than when we set down, off down this path you know, five, ten years ago. Now, it's funny you mentioned five, ten years ago. About ten years ago, related, we're, we're on the related area, Andy. The, the world, the central banks said, okay, we've got this financial crisis. We didn't see it coming. It blindsided us. We'll try and forget about that. We'll paper over that crack. But what we'll do is we'll, we'll reduce interest rates. We'll put, cut the price of money to, to zero. And we let monetary policy, let's get, get a little bit wonkish, do the heavy lifting. And we will combine that. Well, certainly in the UK you did, and we did as well, under our own uh, IMF austerity, which was kind of austerity squared. But you did the austerity mm. thing, right? To what extent, and let's, let's talk about macroeconomics here, does reducing interest rates at a time when the banking system doesn't pass them on to the average character just amplify this inequality because it pushes up asset prices and after all who owns assets rich people but they own loads of them and the reason the poor yeah. people don't the reason the people are poor is they don't have any assets to what extent are we continuing to waltz up this cul-de-sac despite our conversation about what could be done and should be done that we're still dropping interest rates to zero and until very recently we weren't actually spending on the fiscal side what do you think yeah. will be the mix in the next couple of years between fiscal and monetary policy? Yeah. Well, we're, we're definitely entering the nerd zone now, David, which is my, of course, preferred habitat. Um, <laughs> likewise, um, likewise. Uh, so, the, um, so you're right. I mean, you back up 10, 12 years ago, huge amounts of central bank action, monetary policy action, interest rates cut, and, and lots of this thing called quantitative easing, you know, purchasing of assets. I'd say of necessity. Of necessity, because the economy was collapsing, and you know, in the language some people have used, central banks were the only game in town. Without that, a bad situation would have been even worse. And the way I sort of justify it myself to my own conscience when I'm lying in bed at night worrying about these things is without that injection of monetary stimulus 10, 12 years ago, I reckon you know across the UK a million more people would have been out of work. And okay. Therefore, it was worth doing. It was definitely worth doing. And many of those people would have been the poorest people in society. Any policy action, like any medicine, comes with some adverse side effects. But ultimately, this is about keeping the patient alive. And back 10, 12 years ago, it was about keeping enough people in work and keeping the economy alive. Fast forward uh, 10 plus years, COVID crisis, We've seen another dose of monetary medicine, a massive dose of monetary medicine administered by central banks right around the world. Differently this time, however, it's been administered alongside a huge dose of fiscal medicine as well. In fact, in many countries, it's the, the kind of frontline responsibility, the, the, the primary role has been fiscal. And that's because, you know, government policy actions, whether it's, you know, protecting jobs or providing grants to businesses that are struggling. I mean, that, that speaks much more surgically to the source of the problem. It's much quicker. The it's, is, it's much quicker. It gets to the source. And again, again, it's, it's politically, it strikes me, if you're a politician, you know, and you're giving out largesse, 
and I think it's the right thing to do. I mean, you imagine trying to do this vaccine with no fiscal policy. You imagine, you know, these are basic things. You know, you've got to, you've got to spend money. To what extent do you think yeah. that this is the world we're in now? So if you look at you and yourself and myself around the same age, we came into economics at the same time. There was a whole ideological set of baggages that we had to pick up and put in our back and accept in certain ways, certainly if you worked in central banks, okay? And, they, and it was largely government spending bad, interest rate cuts good, uh, this is how we fix the world. Now, we seem to be at an inflection point that we're going on to a totally different worldview, which could be quite interesting. I think there's definitely been an ideological shift over the period from the global financial crisis to now, to the COVID crisis, David, I'd say. And there's been a greater willingness and a greater tolerance for you know fiscal action, fiscal expansions, government spending, to help support economies when they find themselves in the doldrums, as all of our economies have found themselves over the course of this year. And the fact that we've been able to, you know, lasso together the monetary bits and the fiscal bits has given us greater bang for our buck than we otherwise would have had. You know, those two acting uh, in partnership has helped protect more jobs, helped protect more incomes, and led to better uh, outcomes for, for people in the economy, whether businesses or individuals. I'm very confident about that. And I have zero apologies about those things having happened. Because the alternative, as far as I can tell, would, be, would have been things being a whole load worse. Now, it begs questions of the future, right? Which is, where do we go from here? Now, my hope is where we go from here, you know, in the immortal words of Yaz, will be the only way is up. I hope that's true. Do you want to see um, it? Uh, later on, um, maybe it, maybe at Kilconomics, uh, after uh, some of the black stuff or two, uh, David, I can have a bash at that. I don't know all the lyrics anyway. Well, by but, the way, by um, the way, that is now, that is now a given. Andy Haldane that, that, on a that's stool in the can. singing that's in the, can. the only way is up with full Yaz. The only pre the full, full Yaz and the plastic population of which you can be one of the plastic population, David, if you don't mind. As, as. As could John, if, he, if, he, if, he, if he's there at the, at the event. Oh, no, wait, 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 John just Did said... Did you really? Oh, no oh, way. Yeah. Yeah, no way. Oh, come on, forget the economics. That's Tell us. just too good. That's too good. I worked with her on after that track. No way. I can't remember the name of the track. You presided over the decline of her career as a sound engineer. <laughs> <laughs> John, the kiss of death. Tell I'll, me what she like. Tell you what, John. She was lovely. I, I'll, I'll just cross them and you nod them in. <laughs> He's the Kevin it's Phillips of like sound. It's a Kevin Phillips of sound. It's almost like we've practiced this. <laughs> Seamless. The, uh, well, that is remarkable. Well, you're definitely in then. There's no way, John, you're escaping. Excellent. If I'm embarrassing myself, the least you can do is um, contribute. Okay. So, where are we going? Where are I mean, we? Be... Where are we? Where, where are we going? Well, I'll tell you where we're going. I mean, fingers crossed with the vaccine news, which is unbelievably good news and we should rejoice good news by the way we've spent 12 months you know fretting over the bad we should absolutely rejoice in the good really important for economic reasons as well as sort of psychological reasons that happens but on the assumption that leads us you know to a position of hopefully quite rapid recovery there will be questions about where policy goes from there far be it from me to be speculating on what that might be I mean, there is going to be. Wait, wait, wait. How do you mean? How do you mean far be from you? You're the chief economist of the Bank of England. It's, 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 well, in, it's I mean, in your lap. But it, well, yes and no. I mean, part parts of it are, if not within my lap, then sort of within my grasp. And that's the monetary bits. But of course, as you know, 
having been one of them in, in a previous life yourself, uh, David, one of the rules of central banking is to never to cross the line into talking about fiscal policy if you can help it, because that's none of your business. And as soon as you do that, of course, then the politicians feel that it's fine to start talking about central banking, and we get rather uppity about that sort of thing. So I'll not talk about specifics, but what I would say, though, is there's two handoffs going to be necessary policy-wise next year. And the first of them would be the very very obvious one, which is that, you know, as the economy recovers, as, as demand among businesses and households picks up, they start saving a bit less, and therefore the government can start saving a bit more while still keeping the economy yeah. growing. That's one handoff, classical handoff. The government fills the gaps when the private sector won't, but as soon as the private sector fills the gaps, government can step back. A second one, though, less spoken about, equally important, which speaks exactly to your points about inequalities and growth and all things bright and beautiful, is the handoff from government spending to you know pay people's wages or to help support businesses, in other words, spending for today, mm-hmm. versus spending for tomorrow. In other words, investing in stuff like skills and schools and, and roads and broadband and all those things that will stop those vicious circles becoming worse over time. And that, that is the second handoff, policy handoff, that's going to be crucially important, which is making those investments to turn the tide on those inequalities. Briefly, Andy, because I know you're probably going to have to fly. One question, what do you think of cryptocurrencies? You're, you know, you're, in a, you're in an institution that's been issuing banknotes since, I don't know, 1655 or something, 1670. Uh, what do you make of crypto? Well, so we, we kicked off as an institution in 1694, although, truth be told, we only had a monopoly on the, um, very nice thing, by the way, monopoly, uh, on banknotes from 1844. So we've only been at it, you know, as a, as a monopoly provider for a mere, you know, 170 years or so. What do I think about it? Well, important to distinguish two things. There's, there's, there's cryptocurrencies, crypto assets, of which Bitcoin, of course, is the archetypical example. That's not really a currency at all, is it? It's just a speculative asset, really, backed by fresh air and a neat piece of blockchain technology. It's it, it's not stable in value, which is the, you know, one of the, crucial aspects of anything that could count itself as a money. There are separately, though, emerging in the undergrowth, a whole bunch of not so much crypto assets, but of private sector issued currencies, stable coins, so-called, which are digital rather than physical, you know, and which are stable because they're issued with and are backed by some some something concrete, not by a bit of code, but by a real asset, like give, a government, give a government give bond. An ex, give us an example of that. Well, I mean, the one that's best known is the one that hasn't yet been issued, but which should be much discussed by Facebook, called Libra, the Libra stablecoin, which would be a private sector issued, because Facebook's private sector, a digital currency backed by a pool of safe assets so that its value could be assured in a way that a Bitcoin cannot. And, you know, here's the good news. Financial intermediation hasn't been known for moving at the speed of light when it came to innovation and technology. 
until about 10 years ago when the global financial crisis gave it the hurry up, basically. Uh, and since then, we've had lots of new players coming in, many of them non-traditional players like Facebook or Alibaba across in China, and have said, hang on a minute, this banking business, we'll have a piece of that. I think there's a lot of money in it. We've got a ready-made network. Why can't we start swapping monies between David and Andy and undercut the incumbents? I'd say that's a really, really good thing. It means the cost of financial services is cheaper. It doesn't cost you and I as much money to send it between ourselves. It also makes for a more inclusive financial system because almost everyone's on Facebook, but a good chunk of the population remains unbanked. So at some level, this is a really good thing. It's, you know, what you might call, you know, creative disruption, disrupting the existing players with creative new products. But as with everything creative, it can disrupt sometimes a bit too much. And that's why when you're a sort of God-fearing central banker like me, who's heard lots of stories over my far too long career about, you know, how this innovation is going to change the world and make the world more stable, and how this time is different, similar sort of stuff we heard just before the global financial crash of 2008, we need to be mindful of that, that we don't overreach on that innovation and actually generate coins that are anything but stable or a financial system that's anything but stable. And that caused for, you know, in, 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 in traditional, expect me to say this, David, you know, uh, central banking style as going a bit cautiously, welcoming this innovation, indeed encouraging this innovation, but not so much that we lose sight of the things that matter even more, which is stability in our money, which when it goes wrong, we know from historical experience is a disaster for everyone, but especially poor people. Absolutely. In actual fact, I was reading the other day a great book called The Death of Money, which is about Germany, Hungary and Austria, 1922 to about 25. And it's the, it's yeah. the hyperinflation. I want to leave on this last thing. When I talk to my kids, I tell them about watching television and they look at me so we don't get you, like turning on RTE and watching the news. They, they don't, first, they don't get it, right? They, they, I, I've never seen my kids watch television and they're late teenagers, right? These are not little kids. They also don't have bank accounts. They don't know what a bank is. They use Revolut to send money to their mates. When you see something like that happening, it's very clear to me, and you see it in the BBC, looking for their licence fee and, you know, etc. And here in RTE, that basically my mother religiously watches RTE for about seven hours a day. My kids have never turned it on, right? Similarly, yeah. banking. Do you think we're on the cusp, not about coins and about printing new money and all this, but just the game of banking, right? Do you think we're on the cusp of something that is so revolutionary for banking that banks will be totally different in 10 years' time and maybe much smaller or maybe much newer or a completely different creature? I think there's certainly that potential. I think, you know, these could be existential moments for both private banks. And I'd say for central banks as well. Well, this is where I was going I to go. Think, I mean, the advent of additional currency, I mentioned the private sector ones. Of course, one option, if you can't beat them, is to join them and for central banks themselves to start um, issuing their own digital currency. We haven't made any decisions on that yet, but it's certainly an option. If that were to happen, 
that would be existential as that moment back in 1844 when the Bank of England was first given monopoly over issuing, in that case, physical currency as distinct from digital currency. Could we see technology unbundle banks? You know, we've had now for about, you know, 800 years, we've bundled together in something called a bank, a bunch of money on the liability side and loans on the asset side of a bank's balance sheet. Now, with hindsight, that was a slightly odd thing to have done, wasn't it? Because uh, money is immediate and its value is certain and loans are long-term and their value is very uncertain. Yeah, they're just IOUs. It's just IOUs. So there's a historical big mismatch between the characteristics of the liability side of the bank's balance sheet money and the asset side uh, loans. And that's why we have banking crises and that's why we have banking regulation. I've just explained banking crises and banking regulation in 30 seconds uh, in terms of the stapling together of two slightly odd, slightly odd things. It's possible, it's possible that technology could un- bundle those things. So the institutions that are the repository of our money are not the same institutions that are the repository of our loans. And it's possible that may may make for a, a more stable world because you're no longer stapling together two things that are really quite different. So I think there's, there's huge potential uh, there for technological shifts. They will only happen, David, to your point. I have teenage kids as well. Um, uh, I mean, change happens when the technological and the cultural or sociological come together, right? Yeah. It's never technology alone. It's as much cultural adaptation as technological transformation. That will be true of banking. That will be true of the way we work. Where again, we've all gone through a massive transition this year, or many of us have gone through a massive transition this year. Funnily enough, you know, I'm coming from the north of England you know, from a poor part of the north of England, from a working class background. I am genetically pessimistic, David. You'd expect me to be. But I'm also, it also means I'm a contrarian. And the contrarian in me right now is actually rather optimistic about what the possibilities are. Let's explore that before we go. Let's explore that that optimism before you go. Because, I mean, a man, as you said... You know, the man from the north of England, what was the, was it the, was the Monty Python sketch of the fellas from the north of England? The that's right, yeah, the, yeah. the Yorkshireman. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, that's yeah, right. yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, well, I, I, I've been playing to that stereotype most of my life, David, you'd be pleased to hear. The, Listen, um, if it, Andy, if it works, if it works. <laughs> it works. I'm not sure it has, that's the problem. <laughs> the, um, well, I mean, let me take one, let me, I mean, you mentioned finance, that's one thing. How we work, let's take how we work. I've been working for 30 years. It's only this year I'd realized how much time I've been wasting, right? Because it turns out that for the 29 years prior to this one, I'd spent uh, two hours every day doing work, but not being paid for it and not being productive while doing it. Because that's what commuting is. Of course, it's unpaid and unproductive work, which is the worst type of work you could possibly come across unpaid work where you don't actually achieve anything. And this year has taught us that we don't all have to commute, in my case, into the city of London every day. We can actually work from home. There are downsides of that, but there's some big upsides as well. And I think there's a chance that this crisis might jolt us 
away from this silly equilibrium previously, where everyone felt they had to go in, crammed into those trains, crammed into those tubes, inhuman conditions, wasting two hours of the day, doing nothing and getting paid nothing for the privilege. To a different equilibrium, where we'll spend a bit more time working here at home, as well as spending some time at work. And that is a disruption that could be good for not just our productivity, but for our well-being as well. There's a reason, there's a reason, David, why London is by some margin the most miserable place in the UK. And that's because of commuting. So doing less of it, you know, will help level up in the lingo of our Prime Minister, uh, well-being with fewer miserable Londoners uh, like me in exile. And hopefully what's true in London could be true, you know, all the way around the world as well to some degree. So I think especially these times, really important that we think about um, what are the opportunities? What are the possibilities that this crisis has spawned? Crises always do. Yeah, that's why the word crisis in Mandarin translates into both challenge, we've had loads of challenges this year, and opportunity. We've had the challenges, we've risen to the challenges, and thank God we have. It's now time to seize the opportunity in terms of how we do banking, how we work, how businesses run, how we spread ourselves across the regions. And, you know, that's what economists like me need to spend a bit more of their time talking about over the next few years, I think. And who knows, Andy, at the end, Sunderland may well stop collapsing and turn around. What's the chance of that? Would you, would you extend that optimism to your footy career? I think there's more chance of the economy turning around than there's a Sunderland FC, David. But I, of course, as I've become late in life an optimist, let me be optimistic about that as well. We've seen, we've seen, you know, as we're on football, Look at what some of the look at Leeds United. I, I grew up in Leeds, uh, and they have turned the my, corner. My side, Curtis, my side. I have that. Is that, is that your have side? That, see Johnny Giles. You remember Johnny Giles? I do. Yeah, well, I, I know of. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Too young to yeah, remember you're, Johnny you're, Giles. You're a yeah. child, only child. <laughs> but at the age of four, you make a commitment. You make a commitment. You buy the scarf. You watch match of the day, and it's been a crucifix. Three decades, four decades, but now it's, yeah. it's the Renaissance. Renaissance back with a fantastic. I mean, it, it's it's one of the reasons many countries have have problems with uh, with growth and with productivity is down to management. And Leeds United is a classic case of how management can really make a difference. Because Bielsa is a man of some genius, I would say. And he's also a man rooted. He is the man that wanders around the pubs, understands what 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 the supporters are thinking and saying as well as what the players are are feeling. Uh, and that explains a large part of his success, I think. And the David. great thing about football, it is the international language, so he can't really understand people, but he knows the passion. It's actually funny. <laughs> Last week, we had an old mate of mine who was the former economics minister of Argentina on talking about Maradona. Maybe next time, Andy, we'll have you talking about Gaza. Very happy to. I mean, there is... I'm a man who's well capable of torturing a metaphor <laughs> David, as, as you might know, and 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 the, and the Gaza one, and in some ways, Gaza is a, a metaphor for some aspects of our economy right now, because you know, obviously, acts of individual genius from Gaza, not necessarily accompanied by huge amounts of dedication, always to the cause, and 
in some ways, that's the story of many of our economies right now. We have little flashes of brilliance, of innovation, of eccentricity, of entrepreneurial behavior, of world-leading businesses, but just not enough dedication by the rest of the team to turn that into a world-beating performance. So looking ahead, you know, could we build a team Bielsa style where everyone can play? They play with a freedom and an entrepreneurial spirit, but as a collective, could that be a metaphor for our economy? Let's all hope so. Andy, it was an absolute pleasure. That was fun. Thanks, David. Not at all. Listen, thank you so much. Cheers, that was David. brilliant. Cheers, David. guys. you soon in person. Cheers, yeah, Cheers, absolutely. David. Cheers, Cheers guys. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah, he's very optimistic about Leeds there, isn't he? He is. Well, you see, I had him. He's obviously clearly paid off. Uh, you know, he's, he's like, you know, we, we can, it's, it's a full thing. It's the Argentinian, as we were talking about last week, yeah, the Argentinian yeah, yeah. manager. <laughs> The Yorkshire Club, the fact that I committed early doors when I was four years old. But, but uh, you know what is? But yeah, he's and you know what he—he's uh, incredibly casual for a man of of such stature. Well, what I love about—I think it's a sign of enormous self-confidence mm. to have the willingness and the ability to talk openly. Most yeah, senior he's incredibly economists, open. Yeah. right? And I know a few of them cannot talk openly. 
And they hide behind this perception that we know things that you don't know. What I call them as nose tappers, right? right. Like they tap their yeah, nose, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. They say, if you just knew what I knew, if you just knew <laughs> yeah. what I knew, but I'm in the inner circle and you're not. And there I, that's how I get my power. Yeah. Right? Whereas someone like Andy, and it's, it's, it's hats off to the Bank of England for promoting a guy like that over throughout the years, is basically saying, look, economics is for the people. Economics is for everybody. Economics exactly. is down exactly. the pub. It's walking around. It's, it's what this podcast is about. Yeah, and, and, and it's very unusual to have a guy in such a senior position to have that philosophical outlook. And it's about philosophy. It's about the way you see the world. Yeah. So, you know, uh, he's, he's, I, thought, I thought what he was saying was really fascinating. But do you know what? There's so many points in what he was saying there. Everything from the meritocracy, which I think was fantastic, technology and culture, the banking crisis cryptocurrency, all of this. We're never going to get to talk about all this now. So why don't we come back to this interview on Thursday and talk about all those those? Yeah, points. no, I think I think definitely. Especially the one where he's talking about using leads as the template for building a new economy. <laughs> well, the problem with Leeds, okay, and I'll tell you, Leeds was also the template for the complete collapse, right? Because right. if you think about whatever, I remember writing about this in 2007 or whatever, right? <laughs> so, so what you'll know is what, what Leeds tried to do is they borrowed huge amount of money to create a team yeah. that had to win the Champions League in order to make the whole thing Work yeah. all together, right? <laughs> and I remember saying that Ireland was the Leeds of economics. So we're borrowing all this money to put on houses, yeah. which had to keep going up in price for the whole thing to work together. I remember writing that Ireland of the Leeds United of West European economics. So on the downside and the upside, yeah. there is a lesson. Let's come back to those ideas that Andy was just rolling out there. Yeah. Let's come back on Thursday. Brilliant. I know you're sitting there worried about what you're going to give that person you love for Christmas. Give them the gift of knowledge with the Dave McWilliams podcast. We're going to give you for December only, a full year's membership with a 15% discount. So, for that person you love, who loves economics, loves learning, loves the crack, loves all this carry-on, Dave McQueen's podcast, Christmas special present, patreon.com forward slash Dave McQueen's. <laughs>